This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the city's tourism marketing agency pulled its national advertising campaign last week until at least next month in light of the recent surge in COVID-19 infections. A chase initiated by the Louisiana State Police while working with the New Orleans Police Department resulted in a crash that injured an infant. And COVID cases in prisons ticked down last week after a dramatic rise the week before. COVID cases continue to rise in local schools as officials consider vaccine mandates. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hey, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hello, Charles. Morning. Michael, first up with you, there's a national ad series called Concierge, which urged tourists to come visit New Orleans. It ran for a bit, but now it's been pulled from the airwaves. What is going on with the New Orleans Tourism Marketing Company? Yeah, so New Orleans and Company um, is kind of our our publicly funded uh, marketing agency for the city's tourism uh, and hospitality industry. Um, And... You know, you might be wondering why we're, we're reporting on that organization. Um, the reason being, again, they receive tens of millions of dollars in, in uh, public funds every year um, to do this job. And, um, you know, it's one of several organizations that, um, that receives public funding in the tourism space. But unlike many of them, um, it's a private nonprofit. Um, so we're not they don't have to uh, adhere to open meetings laws um, and things of that sort. So um, just to give some background on why this is an organization where we tend to watch, um, it's because there is public money involved. Um, So, you know, basically we started wondering um, earlier in the month as Delta was raging, what New Orleans and company was going to do with these advertising campaigns um, that they had been putting out there. There was one in particular um, where the theme was very much we're coming back from the pandemic, you know, kind of that that feeling that we had in, in maybe like April of this year where vaccination rates were going up. It kind of looked like we were heading towards the end of the pandemic. They created this advertising campaign, basically inviting tourists back. And then, you know, we get hit with the Delta variant um, and this, you know, fourth wave of the pandemic. Um, so basically what, what we wanted to do is follow up and see, you know, how they were adjusting to this new reality that kind of unfolded in a matter of, you know, weeks. Yeah. How quickly were they able to um, turn the ship? Yeah, I mean, it seems like it took them a week or two to really um, pull this this big national campaign. So by the end of last week, we were told all the TV spots um, would stop. Digital ads stopped last week for this campaign. So, so fairly quickly. Just to add two things to that. You know, on the one hand, New Orleans and company cut this ad, this, this ad or this ad series featuring Wendell Pierce. They, they released this back in, uh, in May, so it was obviously a very different situation. Things were looking much more optimistic at the time. On the other hand, yeah, I mean, I think, I think they did, they decided to pull it fairly quickly after the D- Delta variant. I'm not, I, it, was not, it was not all of that, that fast, to be honest. I think it was August 9th was the date they, de- they told us that they decided to pull the ad, the ad campaign. Hmm. The decision came the week after um, Jazz Fest uh, announced that it was canceling. That that seems to be kind of the major motivator. But after that happened, they, they, 
They moved pretty quickly after that. I mean, you know, whether they moved quickly after the Delta variant and this new surge started, um, but once once the festival started canceling um, after that, they did move pretty quickly. There's meanwhile still some um, local local markets that are that are being ad- advertised in. Yeah, um, so so there are a few kind of ad campaigns that they were running at the time. There was this national one with Wendell Pierce that got pulled, but there were two others that were more local and, and regional campaigns. Um, one was called the a local attractions campaign. Another was the um, culinary campaign. Um, culinary is a very kind of local promotion where basically um, they do it every year. Um, it's, a, it's an attempt to basically help out restaurants in the slower summer months when there aren't a lot of tourists. Um, and it's basically trying to encourage locals to go out and eat at some of these restaurants in their slow months, offering prefix menus, um, things like that. Um, so those campaigns they kept. So those are running in the New Orleans area, um, a few different places throughout Louisiana, like Baton Rouge and Shreveport. I think the one out-of-state area where um, the, these ads are still running is Jackson, Mississippi. But yeah, th- those are continuing to run. Okay. I, I have a thought, and maybe it's too much of a political hot button, but there's only a few cities in the country that have as stringent rules like like New Orleans does right now with proof of vaccine and or negative PCR test within, I forget how many days it is, to, to enter a restaurant. Why not advertise that we're now a safe city, vax people who've been vaxxed come to New Orleans because it's safe. It's it's hard to say, um, but I'll note a couple things related to that. When Michael asked them, you know, why it was they were doing this, you know, you know, our initial thought was maybe they were pulling these, pulling some ads because they're concerned about ads running in uh, low vaccination areas and that, you know, you could potentially have have people, you know, large groups of people who are infected coming from parts of the country and and making a bad situation in in the metro area in the state, you know, potentially even worse. Um, But when Michael asked him, it was really framed as much more of a business decision. People are not interested in long distance travel at the moment because they're afraid of, of the Delta variant. And right now that's the basis on which they made the decision it was it was just that we're looking at the numbers and people you know safe city or not are simply not interested in long distance travel and Mm. now they're advertising you know even though they've pulled this campaign they have retained the campaigns that are actually advertising in parts of the state and the region that have some of the lowest vaccination rates in the country and possibly in markets where being a safe city would not be considered a plus. A plus, right. Um, hmm. So, you know, I, I can't um, say what their motivation is for, for that in terms of not advertising that New Orleans is a safe city, but I think those things are important to note here. Yeah, and, and to add on to what Charles is saying, I think, you know, when you know, we were talking to them, they, they, you know, we, we followed up a few times and, and they were pretty clear that this was a, you know, a primarily a business decision to get the best value out of advertising dollars. And like we said, when they really started moving quickly was when we started to see these event cancellations. Um, and I, I think the main driver was that they hadn't really planned on spending much in advertising in October because we were going to have Jazz Fest, we were going to have French Quarter Fest, and they were basically like, that's going to get gonna be enough tourists, we don't need to convince anyone to come. Right. Um, now they're saying, oh, we need to save some money 
to put into, you know, to get people to come in October, which we weren't planning to do. So that, that's another, you know, just kind of a business perspective on why they made the decision. I think your point about advertising that we're a safe city to go to, I mean, that was a big campaign push, you know, last year in 2020 um, in the fall. That was kind of one of the, the advertising go-tos, you know, we're the, one of the safest cities to come to. You, you heard Cantrell say it a lot, Mayor Cantrell say it a lot of press conferences um, when she was trying to kind of balance um, concerns from residents and, and concerns from the tourism community. You know, her big line was, we want to be the safest city in the country for tourists to come visit. So I think that has been a line. I think that right now, given how fast everything is moving with this fourth wave um, and the Delta variant and some of the massive uncertainties we have um, around this whole pandemic right now, um, I think that it's a little bit more of a regrouping moment rather than, you know, immediately relaunching a new uh, marketing campaign. Because again, I mean, it's not like public opinion has landed yet. I mean, we just don't know where we're going to be in a month or two months. Um, so again, um, yeah, regrouping. Are there other cities that are similar? You, you wrote about Nashville in your story. What are they doing? Yeah, I mean, I, so it sounds like all these tourism marketing um, agencies are in a similar spot where, you know, they thought that this year was going to, you know, going to be business as usual um, and that the fall was going to see this big triumphant return to the tourism industry. Um, and now everyone's kind of, again, having to regroup and figure out what the plan is. Um, I, I thought the interesting thing that, you know, the difference between my conversation with New Orleans and company and the Nashville tourism agency was that the Nashville tourism agency put a much larger emphasis on being sensitive towards their residents who are concerned or maybe fearful of tourists coming into the city and bringing along the Delta variant. Um, so, you know, at, that was a focus, again, in my conversation with the Nashville agency. I mean, they, they had the same, you know, business-minded decisions, having to switch up, you know, some of their scheduling here. But um, they definitely talked a lot more about, you know, trying to be sensitive, sensitive to Nashville residents. Um, Whereas New Orleans and company was pretty clear that that's not what their decision was about. So right. I, I thought that was an, an interesting point. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Nick, up next with you, there was a chase recently with the uh, Louisiana State Police while working with the NOPD in a special operation they call Golden Eagle, which resulted in a crash that injured an infant. What is Golden Eagle? So Operation Golden Eagle is a partnership between Louisiana State Police and the New Orleans Police Department. Um, it was announced earlier earlier this summer and, and uh, started in June. And sort of the reason for the partnership that was given by, by NOPD and, and Louisiana State Police leadership was really to focus on, on violent crime, in particular homicides, non-fatal shootings, and carjackings. Um, and you know, this, this NOPD and, and Louisiana State Police have had, had partnerships in the past um, to varying degrees. A lot of it has focused in the French Quarter, um, but these patrols were sort of going to be throughout the city um, in an attempt to kind of, you know, curb some of the, some of the increase in, in, in violent crime that we've seen. So the, the car chase on, on Monday occurred after a New Orleans Police Department um, unit pulled over a vehicle for having windows that appeared to be too tinted and uh, not not having a visible license plate according to, to the police report that, that was filed when that car fled the the traffic stop uh chase was initiated by a louisiana state police trooper that had been nearby it said it was, it was behind the nlpd vehicle and you know the chase went onto i-10 into metairie and and it, it had began in the seventh ward so it, so it really 
you know, took took a, a while and and ended up in Lakeview where the, where there was a crash. It turns out that that there was a passenger in the fleeing vehicle um, who was also holding a, a seventh month old child. Uh, that child ended up having a fractured tibia, was taken to the hospital. All four people who were involved in the in the uh, crash were were taken to the hospital. You know, some of the questions that that this chase brings up are around the New Orleans Police Department's vehicle pursuit policy, which is which is quite stringent um, as part of the department's consent decree, federal consent decree that uh, is, is sort of overseeing the, the department. The New Orleans Police Department can only initiate a, a high-speed vehicle chase if, if they have suspected someone of committing a violent crime and also if not uh, pursuing the vehicle may result in the imminent harm of, of either an officer or a, another civilian. In addition to the needing needing to require um, approval from a supervisor, Louisiana State Police does not have any of those restrictions. So NOPD making a stop, and then when the when the car flees LSP initiating the pursuit, you know, could look to some people like a way to, to kind of get around this policy. Right. So the police are saying that when they pull, did the traffic stop, really, this was just a, a typical kind of pullover traffic stop for some sort of violation like tags or windows, but that it just so happened that there was a Louisiana State Patrol vehicle right behind them when they did this? Yeah. So I think that that's, you know, it brings up some questions. Uh, one thing I should note is that this particular, or that this, this pursuit was the third high-speed pursuit that this Louisiana State Police trooper who, who issued the, the report has been involved in since June, um, so since the start of the operation. The previous two pursuits um, sort of sort of stemmed from surveillance that was taking place in uh, the Real-Time Crime Center, which is a, a, a sort of a video surveillance hub that the uh, NOPD um, uses to, 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 to view the crime cameras that are throughout the city. This surveillance um, revealed, you know, various individuals who, who may have possessed firearms. When that information was then relayed to, to state police troopers on the street, they pulled over these, these vehicles that there were firearms. And, you know, in both these reports, the same sort of reason is used, which is that these cars had, had tinted windows. Um, hmm. So following these two stops, uh, you know, similar to the, the, the cars fled and, and these these pursuits um, occurred again. In the most recent one, there's no mention of surveillance being conducted or suspecting, uh, you know, any any weapons in the car. Eventually, there were drugs that, that were found in the car, a small amount of marijuana and, and some pills. So yeah, the the reasons given for the stop, the tinted windows and the and the and the, and the not visible license plate, you know, doesn't doesn't exactly line up with the stated purpose of the investigation or or you know it's not something that we would expect to see being conducted by a multiple agency effort um for a simple traffic stop so right. you know i think that it's likely that there's maybe something else going on well, when they unveiled golden eagle i mean what how did they describe what did they describe as the reasoning for it what, what you know how, how how was this operation sort of touted to the public Ferguson really said it's going to concentrate on violent crime. Ferguson, Sean Ferguson, the uh, superintendent, superintendent of the New Orleans 
department. Um, and, and like I said, he really focused, said they was going to focus on uh, homicides, not fatal shootings, and carjackings. I will say he also said that it would, it would point, it would, they, would, they would focus on uh, drag races that were happening on Claiborne Avenue and at East as well. So some latitude there. But, you know, at least from my, from my uh, reading of it, it was really to, to tamp down on, on this, you know, violent crime spike that we've seen because in, in, in the recent, you know, last year or so, really those have been the things that have been on the increase is, is violent crime. Um, property crime actually has not been uh, increasing. So that, that I think was really how this operation was, was kind of sold to the public. Right. You know, there, there has been a pattern and, and, you know, I don't know enough about Golden Eagle to say, to, to say that it's not, it is or is not living up to that, to the, to the mission that was, that was sold to the public on it. But, you know, we have seen sort of similar things hap- happening in the past. Uh, specifically with the state police in a couple of different ways. One, you know, we well, we we have over the past uh, over the past number of years, starting with the Landrieu administration, repeatedly brought in the state police uh, to deal with the violent crime problem. In the first iteration of this, what was it, 2015? Um, you know, shortly shortly after the state police were brought in, and it was touted, you know, it was again sold to the public as this emergency measure to deal with violent crime or, or to deal with serious crime that was happening in and around the French Quarter. This happened after the one of the major Bourbon Street shootings several years back. And I remember that there was a period after the state police were brought in, after months or, or you know after extended negotiations with the state and and sort of moving tax dollars around in order to fund them uh they were doing break tag checks for a period of time and uh pe- people were uh, quite upset about that and the other thing the other part of this that you know fits that is fits a pattern that we've seen um is the state police engaging in in car chases, which is something that is more or less completely off limits to the NOPD, except in very in a very very narrow set of cir- circumstances. And we've seen a number of occasions where these car crashes have resulted in accidents. Um, some sometimes uh, sometimes serious accidents where people were injured. So you know this is this is sort of a familiar pattern. You had a chance to speak to the state police or or City Hall yet, and, and what are they saying? Yeah, I mean, the state police, you know, responded to some of my questions. They said that one of my questions was, did they know that there was a passenger and an infant in the car? And they said that they did not due to the, the tinted windows. But other than that, you know, they kind of gave uh, standard answers that they were, you know, they're committed to reducing violent crime in the city, that they are, you know, striving to create a safer community throughout the state, combating uh, traffic and criminal uh, violations with reduced crime and provide safer highways. And, you know, NOPD, like, likewise, didn't really give much uh, of an answer in terms of whether or not they felt that this this pursuit was was justified or whether or not you know sort of denied that they were using the louisiana state police to get around their own policies on on traffic pursuits Mm. i haven't heard anything from the mayor's office yet on this um i'm still waiting waiting for for a comment so we'll see okay meanwhile what's happening with COVID cases in prison sounds like they might be ticking down now. Yeah, so there's been a slight decrease in uh, COVID-19 cases among prisoners at, at state facilities. And so there were 132 cases last week, and currently now another it's down to 90. Um, 
they're also reporting 70 active cases among staff, which is a, a slight increase. Um, I also find, I got, got, you know, uh, department wide numbers in terms of vaccinations this week and, and 71% of, uh, Prisoners at the DOC facilities are, are now vaccinated. They're saying um, the staff rate is is 52 percent. Um, those number the the staff numbers are are self-reported. Um, mm. So there could be some you know th- that could be potentially on the lower end. It's going to be really interesting to see next week and the week after to see if these if it's going to continue to vary wide, wildly or if this is a trend now because of the high vaccination rate among the prisoners. It it'll be a it's a good marker. It's a good thing. Yeah, to look at. yeah. I mean, I'm I'm definitely curious to see how to what degree that vaccination rate will will you know kind of stem this and right you know the lower vaccination rate of the staff whether or not that that is is going to be an issue you know because they really obviously are the ones that are coming and going and right. have, have more of a chance to um, bring it into the facilities but you know how this is playing out in local facilities and, and said this a, a lot of times is we just don't know because the the sheriff's association that is ostensibly collecting some of the statewide data about what's happening in jails throughout the state is not providing it to the public. Supposedly, they have provided some of it to, to the Department of Corrections, which will not, you know, provide it to to me or any other local media outlet, as far as I can tell. Um, so that is really we don't know what's going on, and and it really is, you know, in addition to, to all the people being held pretrial, is half the state's prison population. So so mm. it's a, it's a lot of what we want to know about, and we, and we just don't have information. Are you aware that the health department is attempting to do any any monitoring on outbreaks in local jails? Earlier in the pandemic, had tried to get information from the health department. They had always referred me to the sheriff's association. We know from a legislative audit that the the governor's health equity task force had requested information from from local sheriffs and and had gotten like six responses. So. You know, as, as far as I can tell, the health department, it doesn't seem like has has comprehensive data, but, you know, it's something that, that keep trying to get. It seems, it just seems a little odd to me that with the health department monitoring outbreaks at, at, you know, private workplaces across the state and as well as schools, you know, I'm looking at the outbreak data now, they've got all sorts of different categories of, of places where outbreaks have occurred, That that when it comes to you know, potentially one of the riskiest congregate set it settings that they're kind of leaving it in the hands of a private trade association. Yeah, I think it's very strange. Thank you for keeping an eye on it. Yeah, thank you, John. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Marta Jusen, and I cover education here at The Lens. If you've been a longtime reader of The Lens, you probably know we are a place to learn about important issues, especially those underrepresented by other media sources. It's hard work, and it takes a dedicated staff who care about this community. Please make a tax-deductible contribution today to support our work at our website, thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. All right, continuing COVID news. Bouncing over to schools now, Charles, for Marta, who's on a much 
deserved break. What is the latest on COVID cases in schools? Looks bad. Uh, yes, I mean it. It looks a lot. It looks. Uh, it, it looks a lot more serious than it did for most of last year. Um, Marta has been monitoring the NOLA Public Schools District, which is um, one of the only, or possibly the only, uh, district in the state. I'm not sure that is reporting school school by school infection rates and is and is reporting on its own uh, rather than simply uh, you know uh, submitting its data to the state. And you know last year when we were seeing you know in NOLA public schools you know there's a hundred active cases you know in a week. That's when people would start to it would start to feel a little panicky. This week, however, we're reporting 299 active cases and a cumulative cumulative total since the beginning of the school year, which was at most about two and a half weeks ago and and in many cases just began this week, we're reporting, they're reporting 370 cases, which is already almost half, I believe, about 48% of the total cases that the school district reported for all of last school year. Oh, wow. Um, in addition to that, and you know, and and in fairness, a, a lot of this um, has to do with some, with I believe, some more stringent um, guidelines on on quarantine and who needs to quarantine than we saw for much of last year. We are seeing currently, as of Monday, three thousand and four uh, people, students and teachers, who are in quarantine. Um, which is a full uh, full six percent of the entire student student and uh, staff population of the NOLA Public Schools District, and and just speaking, you know, uh, an- anecdotally from you know things I've heard this week, um, you know, this data lags by a little bit, right. and uh, we're getting more more reports daily of uh, you know additional additional cases popping up in schools and additional mass quarantines of entire classrooms. So as we all know, this is the Delta variant and it's much more contagious. Um, And, you know, of course, it's also worth noting that we're still seeing pretty low rates of serious illness among kids uh, and, and the vast majority of of teachers and, 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 and other staff in, in many schools is vaccinated. So, you know, we're not sure just based on this early data and these numbers, you know, how this is, if this is translated into anything very serious. But when case counts are are that high, um, you know, even if it's a a relatively low percentage of of people who who are getting serious illness, that's still going to be, you know, a potentially higher number that, of, of people than we saw in the past. Not to mention the people that those people may come in contact with or have come in contact with before they were diagnosed. Yeah, well, absolutely. So uh, what's the district saying? Uh, well, so the district is acknowledging that these are high numbers, but they're, they're pointing out that, you know, look, we're, you know, particularly on quarantines, particularly on this, this sort of, this, this really uh, kind of startling number of, of quarantines, uh, they're saying, look, this just means that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're taking every precaution. When we've got outbreaks in classrooms, the classrooms are being quarantined. And that's, you know, so we're being careful, we're being cautious. But at the end of the day, our goal as a district is, you know, pr- primarily safety. But a close second to that is making sure that kids stay in person 
school this year um you know which is what they've been saying for a number of months now right um i just wanted to add that you know uh, we're also seeing similar numbers of uh of quarantines that or you know we're seeing we're, we're also seeing upticks in numbers of quarantines and cases uh in parishes throughout the metro area so this is not this is not just a new orleans issue with these cases and, and quarantines you know sort of is sort of going going up in the first couple of weeks like this um, so uh, it, it, it seems to be happening all over the state. And at the same time, the Orleans Parish School Board is looking at a vaccine mandate for its staff. What's happening this week? They're voting on that? This was proposed last week by Superintendent uh, Henderson Lewis that uh, for staff members who work for the district itself, uh, rather than for, for one of the charter schools in the district, that they're, they, he wanted to have a requirement that, uh, that they are all vaccinated by the end of, of next month. That was proposed uh, mid to late last week. It's already gone to committee and moved through committee at the school board. And, uh, you know, we're recording this on Thursday morning. By this evening, the, the, the school board will be taking its final vote on it. And I'll say what the committee meeting was a committee of the whole, which is which is every member of the school board. And they voted for this in committee unanimously. So unless their minds have changed very quickly, it seems uh, it seems more than likely that it's going to pass through the school board today. So worth noting um, is that when we're talking about district staff, because this is this is a, this is an, a non-traditional district. It's an all-charter district. Uh, people who actually work for the school board itself is a relatively low number of people. It's it's only about two hundred, according to estimates from district officials. So when the far larger group is people who work directly for charter charter schools, um, and that you know numbers in the thousands. Um, the school board says that it doesn't have the power to do a, vac- a vaccine mandate for, for those employees, that that, that that lies with the schools themselves, um, as they are, you know, they're, in, they're, they're autonomous charter boards and they add, they, they're, they're given the freedom to set their own personnel policies. Yeah. But, uh, you know, as of yesterday, uh, about 50% of the schools, or 50% of the schools in the district, or a number of schools that represents 50% of the total district population, I can't remember which one, have uh, imposed their own vaccine mandates for staff. So we're really seeing that. Uh, and, and, and again, that's another, that's another thing where we're seeing more schools you know, make that pronouncement every day. Okay. Um, the, the schools really seem to be moving aggressively to, to, to match the district on this policy. Hmm. Okay, so that number's changing daily too. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I'll mention that the schools, uh, the, you know, there are no vaccine mandates for students in the district other than students who are involved in uh, high school students who are involved in after school clubs or sports. They are going to be required to be vaccinated. But at the same time, these schools are, again, a lot of them moving very aggressively to host uh, to host vaccination events and encourage their students to be vaccinated, uh, according to district officials. Um, this week, we uh, we've already seen just in a week and a half to two weeks of school that they have gotten a thousand, one thousand uh, students vaccinated at back at, at in school vaccination events. So you know that's pretty impressive. Very impressive. So meanwhile, at the Capitol, there was a fairly dramatic meeting yesterday, and um, some active opponents of vac or mask wearing. 
Can you explain what happened? Yeah. So this, this, you know, for people not familiar, this stems from uh, Governor John Bell Edwards um, has imposed a statewide mask, mask mandate um, that applies to school. He brought that down in, he, he, he brought that down in early August. So that it, many, many districts across the state possibly a majority of districts, I'm not sure offhand, we're going to have masks, we're going to do masks, uh, mask optional. That, according to the governor's office, that is no longer an option because uh, the schools are under this executive order. However, following the executive order, uh, Attorney General Jeff Landry released a, an advisory opinion uh, saying that it is the Board of Elementary and Secondary Education and not the governor who, 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 who has the, the, Authority. the, uh, the option to, to, uh, to, to make that, to, to create that order. So yesterday uh, was, you know, reg it, it was a regularly scheduled meeting of, of Bessie, uh, but they were going to debate this attorney general's opinion and possibly even take a vote on, on uh, at least whether they believed that they were, um, you know, that, that it was their responsibility and not the governor's to, to do, uh, to, to come down on masks. Um, so as has happened in school board meetings across the country, this, this discussion was attended by a rather large and, uh, and rather raucous group of, of parents and, and uh, other anti-mask advocates who refused in many cases to wear masks, even though um, you know, they were meeting inside a state building. And I don't think there's much argument that, that the governor's mask order applies to state buildings. So uh, they got about halfway through their agenda in the meeting. People were becoming um, you know, increasingly unruly in the crowd because they, you know, it was a normal meeting. The, 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 uh, the mask mandate was, was placed at the end of the agenda. Um, you know, often it's the case that uh, when you go to when you go to a public meeting, that the, the thing you're there for is not always going to be the first thing that they cover. Right. So they got to uh, halfway through the meeting. They called for an executive session because they were doing an evaluation of the of the state superintendent of education. While they were in executive session, the pastor Tony Spell from outside of Baton Rouge. Um, who was, if people remember, he was, uh, he was arrested last year uh, during the, the stay-at-home order uh, for continuing to hold in-person uh, ch church services. And so he kind of took over the room and, and got people more riled up than they were, already were. Uh, the, the board came back into session. The first thing they did, by the way, when they came back into session was, was, was try to recess for lunch which did not go over. And uh, then they, uh, uh, they decided not to recess for lunch, got back into uh, regular business. At this point, they had been, uh, the, the crowd had been told three or four times to put on their masks so they'd have to leave. Uh, and uh, they, many of them were still not wearing masks. I, I think by this point, even fewer were wearing masks than had been earlier in the meeting. And one of the board members moved to adjourn the meeting without discussing the mask mandate, and that's that's what they ended up doing. So, uh, so this this remains uncertain, and, and uh, I haven't checked the Bessie site this morning, but as of last night, they're not scheduled to meet again until October. So they're not going to have uh, you know an, an opportunity right now in the near future to take up this mask mandate issue. 
you know, without Bessie action, the mask mandate seems to stand Holds. across the state. Okay. It's the Wild West out there. You need somebody to watch it, I guess. Yeah, we're we're happy to have found someone to take over temporarily and, uh, you know, hope she's having a good break. All right, guys. Well, thank you. Bye. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Crastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.